1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was, was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Organization of the church, a woman and her role. Now, it's, it's quite curious, isn't it? I give all these cats, these preachers, I give them an opportunity to choose the text they want to preach, and don't nobody ever pick this text. Avoided this text right here like the plague. And old Morgan, he had the audacity to want to put on our sign, uh, make our sermon title, Putting Women in Their Place. Now, I told him we wasn't doing that. These young preachers, they sometimes don't have a lot of wisdom. I'm trying. I'm doing the best I can, y'all. <laughs> this is a... Uh, this is a great text, and uh, I don't have a. Some people are like, man, I was t- I was kidding with a couple of guys, friends of mine, pastors, and told them we we always say, all right, what text are you on in your in your book and you're teaching through? And they said, what text are you on? I said, well, this. And I told them, they're like, oh, congratulations. And I was like, oh, it's fine, man. Our 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 people, they get this, and it's in a hard text. It's really in a hard text. It's very straightforward until we get to verse 15. There's some interpretive um, difficulties there, um, but. Um, think about the context where we are in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And after Paul is released from prison, if you think through the book of Acts, you get to chapter 28, the book ends, Paul is in prison. But after this first imprisonment in Rome, he's released and he traveled to Macedonia. But as he traveled to Macedonia, he left Timothy in Ephesus to take care of some issues there um, in the church in Ephesus. And this, these events that have taken place here are, are some, sometimes in mission circles, we call them Acts 29 events. Think about it. Acts 28 ends with Paul in prison. Well, he's released from prison. We know that because he writes this letter to Timothy after the fact. And the theme verse, of course, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, delay in coming to Ephesus, right, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is a church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul's writing to Timothy, so he'll know how the church is supposed to be run and organized, administrated. And we've got an outline here. Uh, we're in chapter 2. In chapter 1, we, we saw Paul teaching Timothy that he had to expose contradict the false teachers. There's some that shipwrecked their faith. They didn't hold on to their faith. They didn't hold on to it as if their life depended on it. And they didn't hold on to a good conscience. You remember? We talked about that. You don't have one without the other. You can't hold on to your faith but not have a good conscience. And you can't hold on to your conscience and not have a good faith. They go hand in hand. They're directly proportional. But there were two Hymenaeus and Alexander there in Ephesus that had shipwrecked their faith. They didn't hold on their faith. They didn't hold on to a good conscience. They were false teachers and they were having influence in the church. And Paul was one of those. Remember, he was a, he was a Pharisee. He was a false teacher too. He didn't understand the law. He misused the law. But he was changed by the power of the gospel. And he tells us, he shares his testimony in, in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, Last week, we began to look at the organization of the church. We, we're to organize our church services around prayer. We're to pray for our leaders. And we pray for our leaders so that we can be at peace because when we're at peace, when our communities are at peace, the church can seek to accomplish the Great Commission. I mean, think about it. When there's war going on, it's hard to do the work. In fact, I was in Toronto a, a few months ago visiting some church plants, looking for, uh, anticipating finding a, a partner, that we, a church that we could partner with. And I met a, a, a young man who had been in Russia. He and his family, two little kids, and they had learned Russian. They were living there, and guess what? War broke out with Ukraine. Guess what? That missionary had to leave. 
when there's war and conflict, it's hard to do the work. But when it's peacetime, the church can seek to do the work to accomplish the Great Commission. And so we pray to that end. And we all pray, right, men and women. We saw last week these men leading this endeavor uh, in worship, prayer, in verse 8. And we're going to be looking next week at qualifications for a pastor and deacons. Uh, there's offices that are held by men. But what about sisters in church? What role do they play in worship? Or maybe a broader question, what is the role of women in the church? Again, this text is not difficult to understand. It's difficult for some people to stomach it's not palatable for those outside the church. They don't understand these things. It's not politically correct, but it's easy to interpret and understand. But the main point is pretty straightforward. And our first point, uh, coming from verses 9 and 10, is women should care more about their heart than their hair. Notice what it says. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in... And it lists what they should adorn themselves with. Respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. I mean, what, what should women be? They should be beautiful, right? And all the brothers said, amen. Yeah, but not a beauty that's outward only, right? But a inner beauty, a beauty of the heart. Notice it says they shouldn't be caught up in braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. And in their culture, Roman culture, if you look at ancient statues of women, their hair is all dolled up, got elaborate hairstyles. It's braided and it's got things in their hair, bows and ribbons and all those things, a lot of accessories in the hair. It was stylish of the day. They spent a lot of time in front of the mirror. What well, a day, some women spend a lot of time and a lot of money on the latest fashion and hair color and nails, their clothes, their accessories, right? And women also, not only do they spend a lot of time and energy on those things, but they dress in provocative ways that leave nothing to the imagination. Tom Nelson says they dress in ways that men are attracted to. It catches our eye, doesn't it, fellas? So I walk by, you look, right? He says they catch the eye. They're, attract, they're attracted. We are attracted to that, but they're not attractive. Meaning, sometimes a woman may dress in such a way and her body may appeal to a lower drive that men have, but it doesn't cause him to cherish her. Women who are immodest, women who are vain, they're not the type of person you want to have children with. They're not the type of girl you want to bring home to mama. They do catch your eye, though, from time to time. And some women inside the church, maybe, may be confused about what men want. Some women, they dress provocatively because they're vain, meaning they walk in a walk in church and they walk in and they want everybody to look at them. They want all attention on them. That's vanity. That's wrong. Drawing attention to themselves. Some women dress immodestly because they're immoral. They dress provocatively because they're advertising. They want to be touched. The more the merrier. But there's no place for that type of dress in the church. Reminds me of Proverbs eleven twenty two, The pig with the gold ring in its nose, right? Like a gold ring in a pig snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. You see a big old hog? Nasty, stanky, and you got a gold ring in its snout. You think, man, what a waste. Yeah. You see women who are vain, who are who dress immodestly, you think, wow, beautiful person, I'm sure. What a waste to put all that beauty on an immoral person. 
And Paul's not prohibiting attractiveness or good taste. We were in, in Louisville and led a singles group there. And uh, most of them are grad students. They're 25 to 30 years old. And some of the gals there, they, they, I heard them talking. It's a singles group, right? So they're thinking about courtship and finding a husband and finding a wife. Jenny and I were married, so I didn't have to worry about all that. But you'd hear them talk. You know, if a man is godly, then he doesn't care what you look like. Remember that? I'd, I'd sick Jenny on them. I'm like, the only thing wrong with that is what? It's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the truth. So you can, you can take this thing the other way, right? Yeah. You can take it the other way. It's like, oh, it really doesn't matter what you look like at all. Don't comb your hair. Don't bathe. No. We need to be well kept. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Jenny, that where she grew up in her hometown, it's pretty nice living there. Meaning like you don't see a lot of garbage laying around. You know, the, the cost of living is pretty high. And then we move back here and she's like, why, why are people throwing bags of garbage out on the side of our road? And why don't these people mow their grass? You, you see a person who doesn't mow their grass and they got a, a broke down pickup and it's got about a month's worth of garbage in the back that the coons have gotten into, you know, and stirred up in the yard. What does that tell you about that person? It tells you a lot about them, right? And, and just like a person who's not kept, right? It says something about them. So you can jump the other way and say, well, we don't need to care for ourselves. No, that's not, that's not what Paul is, is encouraging them to do. Paul isn't promoting a dress code either. Oh, you got to wear skirts. You got to have hair so long. He's not doing that. Makeup, no makeup. Paul's not doing that here, right? But he is saying that a woman should not dress ostentatiously, right? Getting drawing attention to herself or provocatively, right? When they come to worship. I mean, and sometimes it'll happen. You're up here preaching. Can't look at this side of the church because the woman is not covering up her body. So I got to preach kind of like this. So you know, if I'm just looking at this face side, you look over there. I mean, who's not covered up? That happens sometimes. It shouldn't happen in church. It shouldn't happen at all with church, God's people. It shouldn't happen in church, right? Yeah, cover it up. Cover up. Dress modestly. That's what he's saying here. Adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. A woman's outer appearance is a mirror of her heart and her mind. A godly woman should be worried about her heart. And we're told about the heart. Luke 6, 45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah, what's inside is, is important. A godly woman has a sense of moral repugnance. She knows what's tacky. She knows what's appropriate. She knows what pleases the Lord. A godly woman can, her husband, look at her and be proud. I mean, think about a Proverbs 31 woman. You, you know the verse. You know the, the, the chapter, right? Yeah, most of you. Women know that verse, right? Can you imagine the Proverbs 31 woman showing off some cleavage in worship? Mm -mm. You can't. Of course not. A godly woman wouldn't do that. And the great women of Scripture, there's few exceptions, right? Rebecca was described as beautiful. Rachel, she was more beautiful than Leah. But great women of Scripture are seldom described physically. Rebecca, she's described as beautiful. Then she's talking about how she watered the visitor's camel. Zipporah. Moses' wife was a shepherdess and the wife of the, in the Song of Solomon. She was a worker in the vineyard. Godly women are known not by what they look like, but what they act like and their deeds. So Paul is telling Timothy that women should be modest and they should be godly. They should worry about their heart more than their outward appearance. What should catch the eye is not the clothing, but the conduct. So just a question for you, ladies. Do you spend more time looking in the mirror or look, looking in the scriptures? Maybe. Yeah. We need to be modest. We need to take care of ourselves and not draw attention to ourselves. Not dress in a way that caused people to stumble. There is... 
he goes on and tells us in verse 11 and 12, there's work that women were not to do. And what is that? What is a woman's role in worship? There are some things a woman is not to do. Look at verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. They're supposed to be teachable. And this can rub people the wrong way. And I just ask you, does this bother you? It goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. We'll explain that quiet in just a moment. But why does Paul have to tell these Christian women to be submissive? Well, the same reason that Paul tells the Ephesian husbands, Ephesians 5.25, to love their wives. Because we husbands don't love our wives as we should. We're taught also in the scriptures, Romans 13, 1, to submit ourselves to the governing authorities. Why is that? Because we want to drive 60 on Holly Grove going to Covington, not 50, which the law demands. So we have to be told that because we're sinful. 1 Timothy 6.18, we're taught to share what we have. Why is that? Because we're self-absorbed. We want to hoard things for ourselves. We don't want to share. It's all about me, me, me. We're told these things because we're sinful, and we need to be told these things. We need the Scripture to instruct us, and it rubs us wrong sometimes, but that's what we need. That's why we have the Scriptures. I mean, there's not a lot of times you read the scriptures and it doesn't rub you the wrong way. Yeah, we, that's what we need because we're sinners. We need to be corrected, constantly corrected, constantly corrected, constantly corrected, right? Think about your little one. You remember that stage, your little one, their wee ones, they're, you know, start to walk. You're constantly, no, don't do that. No, 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 eh, 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 eh. Yeah, that's, that's what the Lord is with us through the scriptures, constantly correcting us. There's empowering things too, right? We're empowered by the word, but it also is a lot of correction there. And that's what we do when we read the scriptures. We're being corrected. Something happened to the husband-wife relationship after the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. This is after the fall. God is cursing. He's already cursed the serpent. He's cursing the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, Eve is going to desire Adam, but not in the way that men desire, right? This isn't this naturally sexual desire for husband, desire him to meet my physical needs, right? But she'll desire to have his role, his headship role. That's what happened after the fall. It's broken. We're broken. So we have to be corrected with the word. And so what happens with women in the church Sometimes women, they don't want to fulfill the role. They want to fulfill the role of a, of a brother, of a man. And we'll talk more about his role next week. We've already looked at it last week and leading us in prayer, right? Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she just may remain quiet. Now, Scripture interprets Scripture. What's this mean exactly? Does it mean that there to be mute and not say anything? I had a brother tell me that recently. I was like, no, I, you, that's not what that Scripture means. It can't be because other Scriptures tell us otherwise, right? Scripture interprets Scripture. There's no contradiction in Scripture. 1 Corinthians eleven five. But every wife who prays or prophesies, it's talking about head coverings here, that's a topic for another day, but head coverings. Who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So it's talking about in worship, women who are praying and prophesying. So in some place you have women praying and prophesying, but here it says be quiet. Well, it can't mean don't say anything. That's not what this scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2 means. It can't mean that. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is giving them instruction on how to do 
this praying and prophesying in the right way, in a way that honors the headship principle. Women can speak. They can pray. They can prophesy. They can teach. Titus 2, 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be... This is written by Paul to Titus. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Who do you, who do you to teach? You teach the young women, right? Teach them to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Women teach. They teach these other women. And they also teach children, right? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Lois and Eunice taught their son, their grandson Timothy, remember? Yeah, Timothy was taught by his mother and his grandmother the truths of the Scripture. His father was not a believer. So a woman can teach, but she's not to assume the role of headship, of authority by teaching, exercising authority over man. That's what this appears to be teaching. This is a, this is, the context is corporate worship, like we're having here, right? Teaching and exercising authority are what pastors do. You look at chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer, a pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable, and able to teach. Chapter 5, verse 17, again, let the elders, the pastors who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the prohibition seems to be the public teaching of the word. That's the authoritative role of the pastor, the authoritative role of a, an elder, a pastor. So when it comes to the roles of men and women, I think the Bible is clear that both male and female, they reflect the image of God, right? We're all equal in that regard. Men are not superior over women, nor women over men. In Christ, we're all equally righteous, but at the same time, we're to fulfill different roles. We see this in Ephesians 5 in marriage as well. We don't have the same role in the home, in marriage. Sometimes we want to violate that headship principle. But the head of the home, the teacher and leader is to be the husband. Submissive supporting role is to be the wife's role. The role of a pastor, we'll see next week, is to be held by men. Women are to be teachable, who contribute to the church as they use their gifts, but not in a headship, authoritative teaching role over men. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Again, this is... Can they not talk at all? No, this is in regard to um, prophesying and accessing prophecies, whether they are true and faithful or not. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church and not speak at all, but speak in regard to assessing prophecies. Your small group leaders will help you with that um, if you need help with that. But think about godly women in Scripture. We see them. Think about godly women in Scripture. Name any. About Miriam. Deborah. Phoebe. Hulda. Priscilla. Remember Priscilla and Aquila? Yeah, Priscilla. She, they had an interesting ministry. They, Priscilla and Aquila, they helped teach Apollos in Acts chapter 18. They... You see all these women having these roles, but you don't see them having authority over men in the worship setting of the church. And I realize that we're kind of opening up a can of worms here. What about female missionaries who had no male colleagues? What about them? They had to teach the word. <laughs> There's always exceptions, aren't there? And we can't answer all the questions, but I can tell you um, maybe give you some principles how we apply it in our church. In our church here at Beaver, Men will be the teachers of the word, like Sunday morning. We always have men preaching the word. Our small group leaders, they lead in that regard as well. Men, unless 
Of course, Miss Jane, she teaches the ladies, doesn't she, faithfully and has been for many years. Our students, we have men and women, their children. We have men and women teaching, but primarily we have men teaching. And that doesn't mean that the women can't teach. No, they do a great job. They're gifted to teach, but we primarily have men there. And, and the reason we do that is because I think in our culture today, we kind of our culture has emasculated our kids. Little boys don't know what it means for a man to lead. We have so many who don't have men at home. They're raised by single mothers or grandmothers. So we just try to model that at, at church, have strong leadership, have men up in front leading. Um, that doesn't mean that women can't serve. Of course they, they can. They can serve and they can pray and they can share. And I think they can even read Scripture. We have primarily men doing that. I think they can read Scripture. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, talking about prophesying, I think that's probably equivalent to reading Scripture. But we have men do that, right? Again, we're just trying to encourage our men to lead, lead in the home, lead in the church, right? We have a problem in our culture with that. Men don't want to step up. They want to kick back and let the wife be the spiritual leader in the home. Don't raise your hand, but I, if I ask, hey, who's the spiritual leader in the home? There'd be a lot of hands being raised by women here today, unfortunately. We want our men to step up and lead. And I think if you're a woman, you love the Lord, you want men to step up and lead. Right? And this can be abused, this teaching here, can it? And it has been, and it can be abused by men, by sinful men, right? But Paul, and I think the Lord promotes a, a caring headship, not a, a crushing, heavy-handed one, not one that's chauvinistic, but a, a servant, leader by men who love the Lord and want to lead and teach their, their families and their, and, and their church. And it tells us in verses 13 through 15, a woman is to be submissive and not to teach men because, and we're given that reason in verse 13 through 15. I think it's pretty clear. And it's interesting. Here, the roles in the church were determined from the very beginning. Every time Paul cites reason for gender-based distinctions, gender-based roles in the church, he, he always goes back to the Old Testament. Because some people say, you know, that's, that's, that's old school. That's old school, man. That's the way it was way back now. We live in, look at our culture today. Times have changed. But I don't think this is a cultural, cultural matter. Verse 13, Paul grounds this reasoning for role differences in the order of creation. Look what he says. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Let me help you with that a little bit. God could have created Adam and Eve simultaneously, but he did not. He first created Adam and later created Eve to be a helper for Adam. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 9. You can look at 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, I think, give help to this. But, for indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And Again, we all agree that Eve was equal with Adam as an image bearer of God, but her function and role was different. She was to be subject to Adam so that their relationship reflected the image of God and his relationship to creation, all that he's created. So Paul is saying in verse 13 that the order and creation should be reflected in the church. Then verse 14, Paul points out the order of the fall. So the order of creation, but then the order of the fall. Let's turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, just hold your spot there. We'll come back. Genesis chapter 3. Real quickly, we're about to close. Genesis chapter 3. And as always, if you have any questions about this, your small group leader is going to love to explain all this to you. The right rod. <laughs> no, I think it's pretty clear. Whether you may have some questions, and we, we want you to ask questions. We want you to understand the text. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. This is after creation, right? Y'all there? You're still turning? Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will, you will not surely die. Oh, serpent, he's something, isn't he? He's calling God a liar. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to her eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and she ate. Now at this point you're going, where's old Adam? Where's Adam? Where are you, buddy? It goes on in verse 6, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Oh, he was with her. What's he doing? Isn't that something? And what's Paul doing here? He's not throwing Eve under the bus. We're all prone to be deceived, right, both man and woman. But he's revealing what can, what can happen when we switch roles. What's the Satan doing in Genesis 3? <coughs> Approaches the woman, enticing her to act independently of her husband, independently of God's authority. I think you see Satan is a distortion of creation. Man, what does he do? He abdicates his authority, gives it away, and woman assumes it. Satan here has subverted God's design by approaching Eve, not Adam. He undercuts Adam's responsibility as a leader in his home. And in turn, what does Adam do? What a lot of us do. He sat back and did nothing. And God's design was distorted. In short, we can put this on the screen for us. Sin entered the world when man abdicated his God-given responsibility to lead and when a woman assumed that role. So he said, what's the main point of the text? Women should care more about their heart than their hair. And then this statement. There are gender role differences in Scripture that God wants us to abide by. And when we do, things go well. Things go well in the home. Things go well in the church. Are there exceptions to these? Well, of course. But here, this is, we're seeing God's design. And we try to follow that and try to model that here at our church. We don't do it. We don't do it perfectly, but we, we try to do that, encouraging men to lead and take responsibility at church, take responsibility at home. Yeah. Look at verse 15. This is, the, I think, the difficult verse. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. She being the woman, right, in general. Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is, much ink has been spilled over this interpretation, right? The interpretation of this verse. Well, we, one thing you can do that's helpful, I think, when you're studying the scriptures, understanding a, a, a difficult verse, what does it not mean? Right, just as we said, women be silent in the church. It doesn't mean mute, right? Can't mean that because elsewhere it, Paul contradicts that with prayer and prophesying that women are to do. We know this doesn't mean that women can earn their salvation through bearing children. How do we know that? That contradicts what scripture? A bunch, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of our own work. There's something we can do to earn salvation, right? And what about those who can't conceive or for the single women who have no children? Right? And elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul has encouraged some women to stay single. If you can be saved by the act of bearing children, he'd be saying, hey, you need to get married and have some kids quick. Right? Yeah. So it's not this physical act of bearing children that you're saved. And some, John Stott, he's a great uh, commentator, a great preacher. He... He detected a reference here to the incarnation, believing that saved through childbearing refers to the birth of Christ and his ultimate atoning work. And it takes us back, Genesis 3.15, right? The curse on the serpent. There'd be enmity between the woman's seed and you, right? I, I don't think that's what this is referring to. Some hold to that view, but it seems that Paul's making a distinction in roles and function here. And, and I think he's trying to help women glory in it. And we're told 
by Paul elsewhere in Philippians 2, 12, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So I think what he's doing here, you know, is, is saying as women are faithful to the Lord, and as they're faithful to the Lord, what are they going to be doing? They're going to be faithful in their role of serving. So they're to work out their salvation, not as generic persons, but as women of God with beauty, inherent beauty and value, right? As well as their own giftings, right? So I think, I think about this too. You know, the rabbis of the early church uh, in Jesus' day, the rabbis would wake up, it's, it's, this is recorded several times, they wake up and they say, they give thanks to the Lord. Lord, I'm glad I'm not a heathen. I'm also glad I'm not a woman. That's what they would say. They would have that mindset, right? When Jenny was pregnant with our kids, it was one of those things that, you know, you're, um, as a husband, you kind of marvel at. Because you're, oh, 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 come here, come here. The baby's moving. You go over there and touch the bed. Oh, that's, that's a cool thing. And just to see her, and she just loved being pregnant. She loved uh, carrying her kids. And it was just a, a miraculous, cool thing to have a baby in your womb. And to give birth to that child. And this bond she had with their kids that I could never have as a father. Really, really cool thing, you know? I think what Paul is doing here is trying to encourage ladies to marvel in your role. Be thankful for your role. Be faithful in your role. We're equally righteous in Christ, man and woman, but we're different in our God-given roles and responsibilities within the church. So maybe by way of application, I'll encourage you to be, be consumed with your heart, not your hair. And next week, coming in, no makeup, hair all crazy. No. Take care of yourself, but be consumed with your heart, not your hair. And continue to be a blessing to our church. If the women stop serving our church, we're going to shut the doors and sell a property. Because women do a lot of work. Important work, right? So what I want to encourage you to just continue to serve and be faithful to the Lord. We're so thankful for you. Amen. So much it gets done. Women, serving, caring, doing. But also I want to encourage you to be excited about your role and do your job well so us men can lead well. And we want to we do want to lead well. We want to lead you and lead our church, lead our families well. So it kind of leads us into the Lord's Supper. You may have questions about that. I'd love to, you can send me a message, call me. I'd love to answer questions you have. Your small group leader will be talking about this next week. And I don't think we have a lot of problems here at our church. Some people are like, man, I have a lot of difficulty with this, but I don't think we do. We have a lot of women who love the Lord, embrace the role God's given them. But it leads us to the Lord's Supper. You know, we resist God's will and we oppose his ways, right? Both men and women. But that's why we must be instructed in the word. You know, the word is, makes wisest simple. The word is transforming us even as we live out these days here on earth. So we're thankful for forgiveness that comes in Christ and Maybe you're here and you've got the elements. Anybody need these, by the way? We should all have them. Anybody need the elements? Need some? Charles, can you help us right there? Needs a couple of those. You might be holding these elements, and, uh, and on top there's a piece of bread, and then at the bottom there's juice. And let me tell you what we're doing here at Beaver. We have open communion, which means anybody can take the Lord's Supper if you're a believer. Now, that's a problem if you're not a believer. So let me talk about that for a second. What does it mean to be a believer? It means that you're, you've recognized that you're a sinner. You recognize that you've rebelled against the Lord and you deserve God's worst. You deserve hell and God's wrath to be poured out upon you. We say all the time, everything above hell is a privilege. So you as a sinner, you've recognized that. You've came to a point where you realize that, that you're a sinner and you're separated from the Lord because the wages of sin is death. That means you're a sinner and you're separated from God. It means 
you don't know God, you can't communicate with God because you're sin. He's holy and we're not. And when we die, we breathe our last and we die, which we're all going to. We'll be separated from God for all eternity where he'll pour out his wrath upon us. And that's good because that's what we deserve. That's the just thing for God to do. So you've recognized that you're a sinner and you recognize that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he took on flesh and he walked this earth and lived perfectly. He obeyed the Father in every way, fulfilled the law. And you recognize that's what you need. That's what you must have. God's, the Son, God the Son, Jesus' perfect record. See, that's the only way we can have a relationship with God is if we're perfect. We have his perfect record, but guess what? We're all sinners. We've all sinned. Our record's been blemished, and it can't be corrected. It's like if you take a, a sheet of paper, say this is a perfect sheet of paper here, you know, and you tear it, kind of a, tear it, and you, try, you can glue it, and you can staple it, and you can tape it, but it's still going to be torn. That's, that's, that's our record. We're, we're torn. We're broken people. It can't be remedied on our own. And so you've recognized that I'm a sinner and I'm separated from the Lord and I'm going to receive the wrath of God because that's what I deserve. But Jesus lived perfectly. And not only did he live perfectly, but he died as a perfect human being. And he didn't deserve to die, but he willingly died. He was put on a cross and he was buried and he died and he was buried. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And the Bible says for our justification. That means he, he died and then he rose from the dead so that we could be made right. Those of us who are sinful, we're separated from the Lord and we deserve his wrath and we'll receive his wrath. But now because of Jesus' resurrection, we can be made right with God. It's like the chasm between us has been taken away. And we can be reconciled to God. And that happens as we confess our sin, as we turn from our sin. The Bible calls it confession and repentance. We see our sin the way God sees it. We hate it and we turn from it. We're like, I don't want to live like that anymore. God, I don't want to rebel against you and, and be your enemy. I want to be your child and I want to obey you. As you repent and you turn back to Christ, but there's also a faith element. Because we need that perfect record from Jesus. And how do we get it? So we trust the work that Christ did on the cross. We trust that he did that for us. He died for us. He lived for us. He died for us. And he was resurrected for us. God, you, you did that for me. I trusted you did that for me. And you tell us in your scriptures, if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just, you'll forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the faith aspect. So the repentance, turn away from sin, and there's a faith aspect. God, I, I trust that Jesus died for me and he rose on the third day for me. And I want to be reconciled to you. And we pray that prayer of, Repentance and faith. God, I'm wrong, and I want to I know you. I don't want to be separated anymore. Jesus, when he died, he died my death. He suffered my wrath. He was punished for me. He did that for me 2,000 years ago. And now I want to live for you. So if you got the elements here, I'm, I'm taking it that that's your experience. We all have different experiences, different sin problems, but we all have a similar experience coming to faith in Jesus. We repented and we trusted Christ. So if you got this, that's what you're saying you've done. And if you haven't repented and trusted Christ, what I want to encourage you to do, this is a, uh, this is kind of like a family meal. And so I'll encourage you, don't, don't take the Lord's Supper. If you've got a little child and he, he has a cup and he, he hasn't repented and, and placed his faith in Christ, you're like, well, this is just a child. It won't hurt anything. You might be right, but... I just ask you not to do that. This is for believers. And if you're like, man, I, I don't know if I'm a believer or not. Well, right now, just cry out to the Lord. Lord, I'm wrong. I've been wrong. And I, I don't want to be a sinful, self-absorbed person living in rebellion against you. I want to trust you. I want you to forgive me. I want to know you. Jesus, I trust that he did die for me, that he did rise for me. And I want you to save me from my sin. I would love for you to be saved today if you've yet to repent. But for those of you who have, we're going to take this top layer off. We're going to take the bread in just a moment. The Lord's Supper is a, is a memorial meal. 
It's a meal of remembrance. We remember what Jesus did for us. And so if you're taking this, you can, you can say, Jesus, your body was broken. This bread is, represents the body of Jesus. It reminds us of the body that was broken. Jesus left heaven and came to earth, lived among sinners 33 years, and his body was put on a cross. We remember that. That bread helps us remember that. And then we drink the juice, and the juice is symbolic of Jesus' blood. His blood was shed for us. Took nails and put in his wrist and his feet, and he bled out of there, and then he took a spear in his side and bled out of there. He died. We sang the song, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus had to, he had to pour out his precious blood for us. Without his body broken, without his blood being spilt, we'd still be separated from the Lord, lost in our sin. Aren't you thankful for Jesus and what he did for you? That's what we're doing. We're being thankful and remembering what Jesus did for us. So I want you to take that top layer off. We'll take out that bread and I'm going to pray and thank the Lord for, the, for his body being broken. Jesus established this during the Last Supper when he was the disciples. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 11. Jesus, after he had given thanks, he broke this bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is the Last Supper. He says, when, I, when I'm gone, I want you to, to, to take this meal. I want you to remember me. So that's what we're doing. We do ours the first Sunday of every month. Let's pray and thank the Lord for his body. Father, we do thank you for the many testimonies represented in this room. And there's a lot of people who's been changed by your grace and mercy. And I'm one of them. And I'm thankful. We're all thankful. We recognize that Jesus left glory, took on flesh, and lived among sinners. He suffered and struggled and gave up his life. His body was broken and put upon a tree. We remember his body for, that was broken for us this morning. And we're thankful. We're thankful. We're thankful for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat this together. Remembering his body broken for us. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so... Helps us remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for us as we sang earlier. Oh, precious is the flow that washes us white as snow. Father, we're thankful for Jesus' blood shed for us. All those Old Testament sacrifices, all the blood shed was pointing, to, pointing all those, those Jews to Jesus. And Jesus came and once for all made atonement for sin by being the Passover lamb the sacrificial lamb who allowed his blood to be shed so that we sinners could be forgiven. We're so thankful for that. It is precious, and we are thankful this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink the cup remembering Jesus' blood shed for us. a good day we um, studied about role differences women in the church and we're complementarian we're not egalitarian egalitarian say we're all equal in worth and we all have equal roles and we can all do whatever we want to do and we're complementarian we believe that the Bible teaches as we taught this morning that we all have different roles men and women in the home in the church I'd love to talk to you about that if that's a problem for you I'd love to Take these scriptures and point that out more clearly. If you got a question, small groups will be talking about those next week. But man, it's been a good day because we sang truth, we studied truth, and we took the Lord's Supper, focused on Jesus, right? Man, that's good. 
focus on Jesus and what he did for us. If you have a question about your salvation, uh, maybe you took the Lord's Supper, but you're not really sure if you're born again or not, if you're a believer. You're not sure if you've been reconciled to this holy God, right? I'd love to talk to you more about that. A lot of people here, you can grab a lot of people, a lot of believers here, right? We believe in the priesthood of the believer. We believe everybody's gifted in the church, and there's a lot of people here who can talk to you about that, but I'd love to as well. Glad you're here. Summer's over. Time to go back to school. We go back tomorrow, and we, we do. We pray here a lot. Uh, in the morning, we'll have staff meet at 9 o'clock. We'll be praying for you as you. We pray for you a lot as you at work and as you're at school, uh, that you'll be faithful to the Lord. And um, God will use you this year in a mighty way. As you're, if you're a teacher or administrator or a student, um, won't be long. We'll start Beaver Kids back up. We'll get to that Wednesday night's real important. Hope you'll uh, this semester make that a priority. It's a real sweet time. It's real helpful, encouraging, equipping time for you. Um, we'll be going through the New Testament. And last spring, we finished up going through the Old Testament story. We'll begin this semester with the adults going through the New Testament story chronologically. Being able to tell that story in about five minutes. So we'll walk through that at the beginning of the semester. That'll start on the 30th. Okay. We have church council meeting today. If you'd like to come, we're all invited. We'll meet over in Chris Mack uh, small group room and for a short meeting. It won't last long today. Um, let's pray and be dismissed. Father, it's been a good day to be here and worship. We got to sing truth. We got to study truth. Father, we're thankful for everybody that's here. We know providentially people are here that you want to be here. And we're thankful. Father, we pray that we'd be faithful to you, that our women our church would be real concerned about their heart, that the way they dress would please you, the way they live would please you. And Father, there may, may be some who've been rebuked this morning by the scriptures we read. I pray that you would help them be faithful, obey you, help them repent and, and live as they should. Father, there may be some who's wrestling with this and they don't want to submit to your authority and they don't want to submit to other authority. I just pray that you would help them, give them grace. Lord, help us men to lead in a way that's pleasing to you, um, the way that, in a way that makes it easy for, for our wives to submit at home and for sisters to submit here at church. Help us be faithful. Again, Father, if there's anybody here who's lost, pray that you would allow them to hear that gospel message that's been presented today, been preached today, and Lord, you would use that to soften their hearts towards you whether they be a, a child or a student or an adult. Father, what a, it's a great day to be saved. I pray that lost people be saved today. And Father, there's some here who are struggling with where they need to be in church and some been visiting here for a bit. I just pray that you would direct their steps to where you would have them to be. Father, that they would be committed to a faithful body of believers that can live life with them and encourage them and they could use their gifts as well. And bless us as we leave, Father. Um, use us this week as we serve one another. May we be faithful. Be with these children, these students, these adults as they go to work, as they go to school tomorrow. May you empower them. Father, may you give them discipline to be in bed early, to get up early, to put on their armor, and to, uh, spend time with you and be ready to be faithful in any and every way. In Jesus' name, amen.